This is episode five of the Smash Up Derby. Today we're talking with Kim Lawson about growing up in an Indiana steel town, her life as a union organizer, and how a militant local union handles a plant closing with dignity. You're listening to the Smash Up Derby. I'm Jonathan Kassam. I'm here with my co-host Sam Smucker. Hello, everybody. And uh, we are talking for this episode with Kim Lawson, uh, who is a retired union representative for my union, the UE, and uh, really one of my mentors in the labor movement. Welcome, Kim. Thank you. Uh, I know you grew up in sort of in an industrial area in northwest Indiana, right? Um, could you tell us a little bit about what it was like, uh, you know, growing up in that area? And- sure. I grew up in an area called the Calumet region, which includes Gary, Indiana, East Chicago, Indiana. It's actually much closer to Chicago than it is anywhere else. It was all based on manufacturing, all the jobs in that area. And the towns were sort of divided up by ethnicity. We're talking in the 60s and 70s um, and 80s. So if you lived in Gary, Indiana, it most likely meant that you were African-American and that you worked as a worker in the steel mills or other manufacturing sites. If you lived in East Chicago, you were uh, Latino. And again, you worked in manufacturing, just sort of a, you know, a factory worker. If you lived in Highland, where I grew up, it tended to be mostly Eastern European, Macedonians, Serbian, also Greeks. You were also a regular factory worker, but you were white. And Munster, for instance, was an upscale town, and that's where the bosses lived. So when we played football, for instance, high school football, you always had to beat Munster because um, they were <laughs> bosses' kids. So, um, so there was segregation by class as well as race. In- exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and the big bosses much of, must have lived in the suburbs of Chicago. We were so far removed from them. Um, I don't know where they were. But, they were- yeah, so it was divided by both your position in a factory nearby, and I'm talking mostly all men at the time. I don't think I knew a woman who worked in the factory. It was very much a unionized area. Every place was union. And I didn't realize until much later in life that the whole world didn't work this way. But where I grew (laughs) up, nobody ever questioned the value of a union. You might complain about because you went on strike and you shouldn't have, or you didn't go on strike and you should have, or some grievance, you know, settlement wasn't to your liking. But nobody questioned the very basic issue of whether or not there should be a union. So, for instance, when the newspaper workers went on strike at the Hammond Times, I remember this, uh, Hammond was also a white working class town. Everybody canceled their subscriptions. When wow. teacher went on stri- teachers went on strike at the local schools, we all loved it as kids because we all stayed home. So there wasn't any sort of basic question, and it wasn't until much later in life when I went to college that I found out the whole world didn't operate that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, it must have, been, must have been a bit of a shock. Huh? It was a bit of a shock. But, you know, it was very working class. I lived on a long street that had two designs of houses, so every other one was one type of house. So you could have the A house or the B house. That's right. <laughs> right. 
And when, if you were male, when you turned 18, you went to work in the mill, um, whatever mill was hiring at the time. If you were female, you usually got a, you know, much lower wage job in retail or restaurants, etc. My father worked at, not at a steel mill, steel mills were the most predominant, um, but my father worked at a manufacturing plant that at the time was called Lever Brothers. It's now known as Unilever, and it had, and this sounds kind of gross now, but it had an edible section of the plant and an inedible section of the plant. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> so the edible section of the plant made things like imperial marjoram and Mrs. Butterworth syrup. The inedible section of the plant made whisk detergent. Uh, we're talking back in the 60s and 70s. And AIM toothpaste, it's kind of sad that was listed as in it. But, <laughs> so it was basically I, a chemical plant, right? That's right. My father worked in the inedible section, mostly making whisk detergent. In fact, he lost two of his fingers, <clears throat> excuse me, at the factory when one of the machines malfunctioned and chopped them off. Oh, jeez. And, uh, and so, so your, your family was a, was a union family, right? Yes, my mother worked retail, but she was in a union. This union doesn't exist anymore, but at the time, and it was also the first union I ever joined at the age of 16, was RDSWU. Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah. retail wholesale. Yeah. And she worked at a, well, first at a dandy discount center, like a Kmart, secondly at Montgomery Wards, which didn't have a union actually later in life. Can you talk about your father losing his fingers? I mean, what was that something that when when that happened, it was a shock to you? Were you young when it happened? Um, I was fairly young. It was not such a shock, actually, because growing up in that area, it was very common for people to get injured. And when this, this was in the heyday when the mills were making all kinds of money, but they weren't putting it back in the mills. So they were machiner sending it. machinery was getting older and... Exactly. And I think in this particular case, it was a machine that didn't work well when the guard was down. So it was common for the workers to move the guard uh, yeah. correctly. Right. right. And the fingers, I was told, ended up in the detergent. Sweet. Um, yes. And my father had to go to the hospital, and it was actually two and a half. Two fingers were gone, and then he had the first joint of a third finger, three middle fingers. But like I said, it wasn't that unusual. One of my first jobs was working at a loan office, and it was one of these shyster loan businesses that used to be very popular, like household finance. This one was general finance, people who couldn't get credit at banks got loans at high interest rates. And one of my jobs first thing in the morning was to read the obits, uh, the obituaries, and then check it against our customers that had loans with us so we would know whether or not they were going to be paid off. So it was common enough <laughs> that that was one of my jobs. It was also a very polluted area. I always remember there used to be a pond in Whiting, Indiana, which was on the way to Lever Brothers. And one of the games we used to play as kids was to guess what color the pond would be when we drove. On, on any given day. 
yeah, it could be blue, it could be green, it could be some weird purple color. Unilever also distinguished, or Lever Brothers at the time, distinguished itself as being the manufacturing plant that shut down the beaches on Lake Michigan at least once a year from pollution that escaped. <laughs> when guys got a job at the factories, and it was usually the steel mills, most of my, uh, the guys I knew that were my age, you had to buy two cars. One was your car that you went out on dates and, you know, your public car. And then you bought an old beat-up car to take at the mill because there was so much pollution it was going to destroy a car anyway. Hmm. So you had to have a cheap one that you didn't mind getting destroyed and then one that you would actually be seen in. How was it? How would it get destroyed? I mean, what, what was Just it? from all the pollutants coming out. Like, I grew up thinking that sulfur was the smell of air. Hmm. Um, <laughs> right. And my family never went on vacations. And I remember the first time I went anywhere was a canoe trip in high school up in one of the provincial parks in Canada and thinking how odd the air smelled. Mm. Um, because there weren't chemicals filling it. Exactly. And also one of the things with the pollutants was all the laundry mats had special washing machines that were just for mill clothes because they could also destroy your home washer. Uh, yeah. So everybody would go to the laundromat to wash the mill clothes because exactly why would you put that stuff in your, your washer at home? Yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm interested in like also when you were talking about how they, they were, you know, not putting putting the money back into the mill. Because I assume these are a lot of the factories that then ended up like closing in the 80s. Yeah, these are I mean, the, the steel mill factories were Inland, Bethlehem Steel. JNL, there were a few others that I'm right. forgetting. Ironically, a lot of those factories were bought up by a company today called Arcelor Middle, which is the world's largest steel company based out of India. There's still, I think, one or two other mills, but most of them are Arcelor Middle. It's where my daughter works. Sort of historically, people didn't see the plant closings uh, of the 80s coming, but but clearly, right, if there was was. It's sort of interesting to think about that there was this disinvestment right, right. for long before the actual plant closings. That's right. And now I think there's a casino out in the water, things they've done to... I do remember in... I graduated in 1978, and it was starting then because not too long ago I looked at my old high school yearbook from 1978, and there was a little news section about how hard it was to get a job that year. Right. You know, what made you interested in, in working for the labor movement? Well, I hadn't thought about it at all. It was just how I grew up, and I didn't think anything of it. And then I went away to college, which was just starting to happen. You know, as a kid here and there, it certainly wasn't the norm. But I went mm -hmm. away to college, and I went to Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. And I realized very quickly when I was at college that the life I led was not the lives of most people. And I heard for the first time, you know, things like union workers make too much money. You know, <laughs> you know, they can afford two cars, right? That's right. Well, my parents lived, you know, as I said, in house A or house B. Right, right. And they did buy a new car every 10 years and they could feed us. Okay. 
<laughs> but it never seemed some, seemed like there was tons of money laying around, and also that you know unions were the reasons why factories closed down, and all this bashing of the labor movement, and it really made me very angry, to tell you the truth. And I didn't know what I wanted to major in, so I picked something kind of obscure but interesting called organizational communications. By that time, by the time I graduated, I had decided that I wanted to be a lawyer that worked in the labor movement. Um, And I was a very good student. I graduated with a 5.8 average out of six at Purdue. However, I was very, very bad at taking standardized tests. And I took the, excuse me, the LSAT and completely bombed it. And so one of my professors said, look, here's what you should do. You should go ahead and get a master's degree, add labor relations to your major. And then even if you do poorly on the test two years from now, the fact that you have an advanced degree will mitigate some of that. So I had no interest in going out and working immediately. So I signed up. Right, right. And <laughs> and I got my master's degree in organizational communications and labor relations. During that time, I met Will Orr, who I've been married to for, been with for over 30 years now. And when we graduated, he said, look, I have an idea. You don't know, you know what labor's like from growing up in a labor family, but you don't know what labor's like when it comes to working. So why don't we make a deal? Why don't you spend a year working for a union or less if you want? And then if you still want to be a lawyer, right, I'll do everything I can to support you. So that sounded like a good idea. And I sent out resumes to tons of unions that got very poor response. People weren't that interested. And then a woman from the Teamsters actually talked to me on the phone and she said, she was talking to me about my background, et cetera, mm-hmm. and she she had told me she wasn't going to hire me. But after she talked to me, she said, you know, the problem is on your resume, you keep stressing that you have this college education and an advanced degree, and no one cares about that. <laughs> and there are lots of people right, who right. come out of college and want to save labor and join the revolution and become a part of the union, and mostly they're pains in the asses that don't work out. So what you need to do is rewrite your material and stress the fact that you grew up in a working class family, that your father's a factory worker, your mother a retail worker, et cetera, and then people will be interested. And I did that, and I think the first letter I sent out, I got a job offer from the United Farm Workers. Uh, Yeah, so I moved to California, and I worked for them for a year at their headquarters in Tehachapi. Or not in, in La Paz, I'm sorry. Tehachapi was the town I lived in. That was a and big then, jump from the steel mills, from the steel mills it, to the farm workers. It was a big jump. I mean, in some ways it was a hard life and a dangerous life, but it was so much worse in the fields, obviously, with child labor, no sanitation, no running water, getting covered with pesticides. My first assignment, actually, I was hired as a writer for the farm workers' publications. They had two. One was a magazine for workers called El Macriado, and one was for white liberal supporters who sent them money, which was called Food and Justice. 
And I remember my first assignment was to go to the funeral of a child um, who had died because his mother had been sprayed with so many pesticides. He was born with a lot of deformities and didn't live very long. Oh, man. That's a tough first assignment. So, yeah, a little bit different. But I got to meet Cesar Chavez and his family, and I still have friends from those days. Nice. And how did you uh, move from the farm workers to UE? Well, I was, after about a year, I just was feeling so far away from everything on the West Coast, and I wanted to move east. And my mother-in-law actually had sent me a clipping from the Pittsburgh newspaper that was about how the UE was moving from New York City to uh, Pittsburgh. Oh, right, right. The headquarters. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll apply to them. I knew from doing labor history in college who the UE was and what they stood for. And I did apply, and I believe it was John Hovis talked to me about taking an assignment in Fresno. And I told him I wasn't interested because I wanted to come east. And then the ILGWU offered me a job on the East Coast, so I took that job. We had a garage sale. Dolores Huerta came to my garage sale. I wouldn't let her pay for anything because <laughs> it was just crazy. Um, but we had a garage sale, sold everything that wouldn't fit in the back of the pickup truck, and we moved east. I found out later, years later, that actually the UE had tried to call me back to offer me a job in the east, but my phone was disconnected, and this was well before the days of cell phones right. and email, so... I never knew that until much later. But I got a job with the ILGWU, and I worked in Lawrence and Lowell, Massachusetts, the Albany area in New York, for about a year as an organizer. And that's um, the, uh, the, the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. Exactly. Right. Which is now something different. Um, but I didn't like that union. I'm not supposed to. I don't know if you're supposed to say... You're allowed to say whatever you want on this. uh, (laughs) I really didn't like that union. Its membership by far was women and a lot of women of different cultures and ethnicities, and the whole leadership was all white men. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the staff, they didn't treat the staff very well, and they didn't seem that interested in organizing. And I kept trying to find campaigns. I didn't know what, I had no experience. I got some training, but it really wasn't uh, useful. And finally, to sort of shut me up, I think my boss, who was about 10 years younger than me, white male, sent me to work in, um, they called it at the time colonizing, now it's called salting, in a factory outside of Albany. And uh, I went to work there for a while as a factory worker. It was called Ursula of Switzerland, and we called it Mother of Bride Dresses. That's what they looked like. So I worked there for a number of months while I, and when I started sending the union information, you know, I'd look at the sign-in cards and go to the bathroom and write down all the names and tried to strike up relationships. And a lot of the workers were long-term Worker, so it was taking a while, but I was doing everything I was supposed to do, and the union still refused to do anything about trying to organize it. 
So I started looking for other jobs. I contacted the UE again, um, mm-hmm. and this time they hired me. And so what was your first assignment for the UE? My first assignment, Dave Cohen, an international rep at the time in Massachusetts, interviewed me. And then Eddie Bruno interviewed me by phone, who was the director of organization. And they sent me to Decatur, Indiana, where a General Electric factory was closing down. Uh, It was local 924. They were hundreds of workers. They were our members. And they were shutting the factory down and moving it to Mexico. Um, And this had happened after they had attempted to open, get the the local in Decatur, Indiana, as well as an IUE local in Fort Wayne, which was close by, to open the contract and negotiate wage concessions. The UE site refused to do it and actually went and leafleted the IUE shop, encouraging members not to let the their national union do it, um, which really endeared us to the local IUE <laughs> Uh, But what ended up happening was they announced they were closing the Decatur factory and they slashed the wages at the Fort Wayne factory. So my job was to help this local that had been around forever uh, get through this plant closing and also mount a fight back campaign because, you know, this was an instance where it was a small town in Indiana. This was the employer everybody wanted to work at, the good-paying jobs. Um, And it was also a pretty militant local, which was very good. So even though I was sent there to help them, mostly I learned from them. Um, You know, I remember one day I was in the local's office, and Leonard King, who was the financial secretary at the time, he was in the office because he got four hours off a week to do the books. And he leans over to me and he says, you don't have a clue what you're doing, do you? (laughs) Two days on the job. And I said, oh, Leonard, I'm so lost. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, look, here's how it's going to work. We're not going to tell all the members that you don't know anything. Um, But the leadership's going to train you how a strong militant UE local goes out with respect. And uh, don't worry about anything. We'll tell you what to do. And that was uh, such a relief. And they did show me that. And I had some pretty amazing experiences as a new person on UE staff working with that local. So, so even in the midst of having their plant shut down, they, they sort of took it upon themselves to, to train staff for the national. Yes. Well, me. I was the yes. Right. <laughs> yeah, my, my immediate supervisor, his name was Donnie Agler, an international rep, had uh, been diagnosed with cancer. So he was he was still working, but not nearly as much as he normally would. So they let me do things like when they had grievance meetings, I got to sit in. I didn't talk, um, but <laughs> I got to listen. And I got to help work on, they called it the green sheet, which was a leaflet they put out. They had had a system worked out with GE where all grievances were heard on a Friday afternoon at the union office. So all the bosses would come to the UE office and they would argue all the grievances. And then they would put out this thing called a green sheet, 
which was mostly like the worst quotes from management that would <laughs> and piss them off. And in fact, sometimes in the meetings, management would say, oh, shit, that's going to end up in the green sheet, isn't it? After they said something. <laughs> Um, but this was the days before copiers, so we ran them on this old mimeograph machine. Right. And, and the local was very proud of the fact that they had a fairly large union hall and that they had purchased very little um, to furnish it, that it all came from the factory. <laughs> <laughs> Just all borrowed. Paper or pens, the desk, right. the chairs, the file cabinets. Oh, GE okay. can afford it, right? That's right. And they had a pretty good, you know, sort of fight back campaign. They had these shirts made up. At the time, GE had a slogan that said, GE brings good things to life. And they had the word life crossed out. And then underneath it, it said Mexico, China, Vietnam, um, <laughs> all these sorts of things. GE, people started, the, the plant closing actually took over a year to do because they had announced it earlier than they meant to because it was the hope to scare the UE into agreeing to wage concessions. Right, right. They actually weren't ready to move the work after the announcement. It was going out piecemeal. Um, and people started missing work. No surprise, right? <laughs> right, you know, right. They would say, what are you going to do to me? Close the player? <laughs> um, and so at one point, GE said, this is going out of hand, getting out of hand. We're going to do this program, this uh, thing where if everybody punches in and out on time for work and for breaks or for lunch, then they're going to get this cash bonus. And they said, but we're not going to include union time. So if any of the stewards or the officers need to go you know, deal with union matters, right, right. automatically disqualified. So the officers and the stewards talked to all the members. There were about 500 of them, I remember now. And the next morning, everyone went into work and punched in and then punched out. <laughs> immediately. And, yeah. Yes, immediately. <laughs> that was the end of the contest. <laughs> so then at another point... That's great. You know, the local and management were both concerned about the same thing for different reasons. You know, it's well documented that when a factory closes and it's good paying jobs in a town that doesn't offer other ones, you know, there's all these sociological problems that happen. You know, there's an increase in alcoholism, uh, sometimes in domestic violence, big increases in depression, sometimes suicide, etc. And right. so GE sat down with the local and they said, look, we want to, you know, deal with this issue. And so our idea is to bring in mental health experts and have them talk to the workers and go through the factory and teach them how to handle their anger, right? So there may be fewer cases of this. And the local said, absolutely not. Anger is the most appropriate response to this situation. Right. We just want them taking it out on you, not on their spouses or kids or themselves. So, right. So the local actually brought in its own mental health experts that it paid, explained to them what the parameters were. And then those experts worked with the stewards to help them see signs of when somebody might need help and how to talk about it and intervene. 
So they were pretty stellar local. Yeah, they that's also were very proud of the fact. I don't think I can get them in trouble this many years later. <laughs> a single machine that moved to Mexico would actually function. Say that again. They were very proud of the fact that they had ensured that all the machines that were sent to Mexico, that not a one of them would actually function once it was set up there. <laughs> <laughs> and that also delayed the plant closing because they had to ship the work from Mexico back to Decatur, Indiana, for them to fix. Right, right. So they would, they, the, the factory in Mexico was just producing crap and essentially exactly. they had to send it all back to Indiana. <laughs> And one other thing the fight the local didn't win and they were very angry about is they would fix it. And they had won awards of produce. They made they produced small uh, engines like that would be used at a gas pump. Uh, right. And they were very proud of the fact that they had won industry rewards for super high quality and dependability, etc. And they were very angry that after they fixed these engines the company insisted on stamping them with made in mexico hmm. because the customers wanted ones from decatur because they knew they'd be good and the right. company wanted them to see that the mexico ones were good even though they weren't mexico. even though they weren't really mexico right yeah or good yeah. <laughs> how did that uh, play out then i mean just little by little did the plant um let people go exactly and employees had a choice of, they could apply for jobs at the lower wages in Fort Wayne. And many did, because even at a lower wage, it was better than a job they were going to get in their own town. And they right. took with them their service. So their years of work counted for things like vacation and that sort of thing, but not their seniority. So they were at the bottom of the seniority list terms of bidding on jobs, et cetera. Some people, they were offered early retirement incentives uh, for some people. And I do remember one case where we had a long-term employee who was out on long-term disability and he died and GE refused to pay his family his severance pay because he wasn't actually working at the time he died. Hmm. So they, the employees were able to transfer over to the, to the other um, GE mm -hmm. shop. This would have been the right. IUE shop. Exactly. Right? So it was wanna, about a 45-minute drive away. Do you want to explain the difference between the UE and the IUE? Uh, we're going to make you do like a little history. You should have Jonathan do that. He'd be more accurate. Well, <laughs> because I mean, the IUE was a union that was set up to destroy the UE, basically. So, uh, so the, the while we're talking about the UE, so the UE, uh, you know, I know it has sort of like a, a public reputation as being fairly progressive uh, on gender issues. You know, obviously, uh, a lot of you know old time manufacturing locals uh, still pretty male dominated. I imagine even more so uh, when you hired in. So, can you talk a little bit about what it was like being a woman on UE staff? Sure. Um, you know, most of the people I dealt with in management in Indiana, and then I was moved to Vermont, where I serviced some manufacturing shops. Um, 
all the management was male. The only female was usually the head of HR. Um, and a lot of the local leadership actually was male as well. I remember when I moved to Vermont, they had just elected their first female president. And one of her concerns was people would ask her what was going on in the local, and she wouldn't know because all the discussions about strategy, et cetera, happened in the men's room. So I had to <laughs> yeah. So I had to work with the old time leadership, right, to get them to yeah. have discussions in other places where she would attend and be comfortable and be able to fulfill her responsibilities. Um, I also struggled at the beginning with, especially when I moved to Vermont, because when I was in Indiana, the local mostly dealt with management, but when I was in Vermont. I did more dealing with management, and not surprisingly, in the male-female conversational relationship, they would interrupt me constantly. And I, at the beginning, would say, you know, stop, let me finish, you're interrupting me, and kind of complain. And then I talked to a woman who had been with the UE for years, working in Massachusetts, and I complained to her about this. And she said, well, you're reacting the exact wrong way, right? They don't understand that. They characterize it as whining. It reinforces that you're a female. And, you know, so what I do, what I've learned to do is interrupt them. And when they raise their voice, I get louder than they are. So I did that. And then I had the men complaining that I was interrupting them, (laughs) talking over them and... I knew that was the right way to uh, to proceed. Um, but, you know, I did have a couple of, you know, supervisors make the usual sexist jokes and that sort of thing. But the members were always pretty good. I didn't really have many problems with the members. Um, I did get pregnant when I was in Indiana still. Um, and I remember I told my international representative, Donnie Agler, who called Eddie Bruno, who was the director of organization, to tell him that I was pregnant. And Eddie's response was, I don't know what to do about that. And Donnie said, well, the good news is you don't have to do much. Uh, (laughs) Kim will have to do most of it. Um, So I think I, I was the first woman to have a baby on staff. Wow. And this was in, what, the late 80s, early 90s? Yes, 88. Emma was born in 89. So we had to figure out things like when you traveled on organizing campaigns, how did you deal with daycare, those sorts of issues. Right. Uh, You know, I want to ask you just about, like, stepping back about coming to Vermont And essentially, UE at that point is an industrial union in Vermont. And then at this at this point, my guess is almost all those places have closed, if not every single one. Um, There's one left that was here when I came, and that's uh, uh, Fairbanks scale in St. Johnsbury. But at the same time, then the union has essentially become a service and 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 public sector union. Is that right? That's right. Yes, Um, that's right. So that's a pretty big success. I mean, in other words, weathering while you're you're negotiating factory closings left and right, then organizing 
you know, what, several hundred, many, a thousand service workers. Um, do you want to talk about that change in the union? Is there, is there something to draw, some lesson to draw from all of that? Are there observations you have about that? I mean, it's really, a, it's sort of the American story in the last 20 years, right? Last 30 right. years to see that, that happen. Um, I was in the midst of it. So looking back, yeah, it was pretty, uh, not to sound conceited, but it was pretty impressive that we organized so many locals. We also managed to organize some of them without NLRB elections, um, through doing community elections, et cetera. Um, and it did add, as you said, sort of what our culture is today, it added to the union different issues. For instance, traditional manufacturing, you know, had, well, they used to have defined pensions, even that's changing now. But even if they had them now, they still have them, but they're frozen, right, or they're not getting added to. Um, and they had all the works rules about the boss can't do our work and all those typical rules. And when you're organizing service workers, sometimes their complaint is the boss isn't doing the work. <laughs> um, they have no clue what a redefined benefit or defined yeah, benefit retirement plan is. Um, and so it adds a very different mix. Uh, so like when we would have council meetings or the locals in New England would get together or at convention, you know, it did really did add, I think, to the UE um, a different dimension that reflected what much of the workforce is facing. And sometimes it, you know, it would take a while for the two groups to sort of get each other. Mm. Well, and I would imagine that the the leaders, the, the employees, the union members, the leaders became younger and more female. That's exactly time. right. They did become younger and female. And a little bit more ethnically diverse, though, in Vermont, you know, there's it's a mostly white state, but we did have some leaders that had emerged over the years from different ethnicities. But yeah, definitely younger. Lot more females, and and maybe even poorer. I mean, given the fact yes. that they weren't going to have these, you know, these uh, uh, contracts that had built up been built up over forty years, and no pension plans and all of that. Right, definitely. Some of the locals definitely lower wage. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the differences and similarities between uh, organizing and manufacturing and in the service sector? Um, did you use different organizing strategies and, and sort of did it change the culture of the union at all? Um, well, I think there's lots of similarities in that workers are workers. And in my experience, most workers are proud of the work they do. Right, even if others aren't. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so there's all those similarities. The difference is, and it did affect how we organized and serviced um, and built the locals in the sort of service sector. You know, we organized workers at the University of Vermont and several nonprofits, um, was that, and retail stores, co ops was that in manufacturing, one of the most difficult things in organizing was the workers were always convinced the boss was going to move the plant, and nine times out of ten, the boss had actually made that threat. 
Right, right. right? And it's a threat that doesn't exist. For instance, UVM's not going to say, we'll go to Mexico if you have a union. Well, they haven't figured out how to do that yet. (laughs) No, not yet. Um, And some of these other sectors, the other thing that was a really big difference and affected the organizing was, was that in manufacturing, you know, if you did a picket line or a rally, the boss didn't like it, but they weren't that concerned about their reputation in a community. Right. Picket line or a rally outside of a university or a food co-op, right, that had a lot more impact. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of organizing and also bargaining contracts, we had different tools at our disposal. Um, in manufacturing, I think, especially in our older locals, right, the idea of a strike is something that people would consider and do, right? And they knew mm-hmm. it was effective. In the public sector, it's, you know, everyone's like, I don't want to go on strike. I don't want to go on strike. So when you're developing bargaining campaigns, it's figuring out how to exert the maximum pressure um, without necessarily going on strike. By always building the local so that it would get more comfortable with that idea. Right. And, uh, And one of the things, can you talk a little bit about the Vermont, about the Workers' Rights Board? About the what? The Workers' Rights Board? Oh, yeah. And I can't remember the year, forgive me. But we started uh, organizing this. uh, We did the first, I think it was the first in the country, Workers' Rights Hotline, that people could call and ask questions about their work. Um, At the time, it was primarily myself, um, Phil Ferramonti, who worked for a union at the time, now works for Bernie Sanders, a woman from the state employees, and several others. And we set up this hotline that workers could call. And most of our calls were referrals because we talked to the state agency, like the attorney general's office and the unemployment office and workers' comp office and wage an hour. And they loved us because so many times they were getting calls from workers that were getting screwed, legitimately screwed, but there was nothing to do for them. There were no laws that protected them. So they had to tell people that. Um, And now they could tell them, oh, but you can call this number. We can't (laughs) help you, (laughs) right? But call the hotline. And we had created this board that was a mixture of some labor activists, but also Uh, people from the community, state representatives, local activists who worked at other social justice organizations, et cetera. And once in a while, we would actually go to an employer and attempt to intervene if we thought it would be effective. Um, But we always, our first response when people called the hotline was always to ask them if they were in a union, and if not, would they like to start one? And we did get some organizing. We did some organizing based off of those conversations. The project later was taken over by the Vermont Worker Center. Right. And still exists. It does, yes. So uh, what's the craziest thing you've seen a boss do? The craziest thing I saw a boss do is we represent and still do about 400 workers who are government, federal government contract employees. Um, they work in a federal building that houses USCIS in Vermont, which is Immigration Services, and they're largely female in Vermont, and they're clerical workers. 
So they work in the mail room or they do data entry or they manage files. And in the mail room, occasionally there would be a problem because suspicious mail would arrive. And in every case, <laughs> you know, you have people from other countries who are making applications to come and live in this country um, or work in this country. And sometimes they would send along gifts hoping it would help their application. So they might put in some spices from mm -hmm. their garden. Or in one case, somebody sent one of those greeting cards that when you open it plays a song, right? But after it had gone through the machines in the mail room, which crushed it, right. there were wires sticking out. And so it was immediate big incident. And they shut the mail room down. They may have evacuated the rest of the employees as well. Um, they called in whatever specialist they call in. But... It was taking a very long time, and the workers were told in the mail room, our members, that they couldn't leave. Now, mind you, this was going on for hours, and we had a member who was a diabetic who needed food. We had people who desperately needed to go to the bathroom, um, and their supervisors kept telling them they couldn't leave. And I think one supervisor actually gave somebody a bucket and told her to use that. Jesus. Um, and the stewards finally had had enough. We had two stewards in there, and they just led the people out. They said, we're not doing this. We're not suffering anymore. We're out of here. And they opened the doors and left. And there was a big grievance afterwards um, because of the way the workers had been treated. And so we said, you have to give people, if you're going to keep them in there, you've got to get a bathroom in there, and you've got to give them access to food and water. And so management's solution, I always remember this one manager who did it, he was very proud of himself, <laughs> he ordered a camper toilet from Walmart. And then he constructed this platform out of pallets. And he hooked up the camper toilet. Now, mind you, this is in the mailroom. And then he fashioned some sheets <laughs> or sour curtains or something around it and said, problem fixed. Oh, my God. So that's he, like, he built his that's own like bathroom. The, that's, yeah. like, that's like the worst summer camp story of, like, torturing <laughs> teenage boys, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Imagining you're working and you got to, yeah. Anyway, we said unacceptable. They said too bad, that's what you get. We called VOSHA, Vermont Occupational Safety and Health. Yeah. They came and looked at it and were just aghast. I wasn't there, but the chief steward was. They took pictures of it. They were um, incredulous. <laughs> that the They're like, had we're going to send this to all the other OSHA agents. That's right. <laughs> and they, so they did their investigation, and it wasn't looking good for the company. And we were set up to do a conference call, the union, the employer, and OSHA. Uh, to decide to hear how VOSHA was going to resolve the issue. And the company announced at the beginning of the phone call that none of this investigation or anything that happened before was really relevant because they worked out a new plan with the federal government where the employees would actually be allowed to leave on the, on the door that led to the loading dock and then would enter the building at a different location and have access to a bathroom. And Bosha said, that's all well and good. 
that solves the problem, you're still getting fined. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's the craziest thing I ever saw. Yeah, yeah. So uh, sort of on the on the other uh, end of the spectrum of, of the labor movement, uh, what's what's the most inspiring act of solidarity that you see? Oh, God, there have been so many. This is a difficult one. The story I told about the GE workers punching in and out. Yeah, yeah that, that's a good one. That was pretty amazing. Um, you know, the last set of negotiations I did before I retired in Vermont and California, it was a contract for two different locations from this government contractor. Um, we got over 100 people come to negotiations. And in fact, in Vermont, we were negotiating in a meeting room and we had to move negotiations to the ballroom. Um, and the second shift workers came before work. This was last day of bargaining. And then the first shift workers came after work and many of them stayed until the bitter end. And the second shift workers came back after work um, to watch the conclusion. And that was pretty amazing as well. Wow. In general, getting a worker who's been fired their job back is incredibly gratifying. Um, but one of my favorite grievance wins was, again, at this government facility. And we had a member there who had MS. And as his MS advanced, um, there were fewer tasks he could do, but he could still do, you know, he didn't work five days a week. I think he worked two or three. But there were mm -hmm. still tasks he could do for eight hours on those days he worked. And work was incredibly important to him. He didn't need it for financial reasons because he was receiving other disability and other income. Um, but he really needed it just for quality of life issues, right? And the other workers uh, really loved him and they helped him all the time and he got along very well and this was just sort of a crucial part of his life. Mm -hmm. And then as his health deteriorated, management announced that they were changing the tasks he was assigned, and the list they came up with were all things he was physically incapable of doing. Mm -hmm. And so we grieved that. Yeah. And then while we were grieving it in the early stages, he fell out of his chair, which was had happened before. The other workers helped him back into his chair, and he was fine. But management said, okay, that's it. Now he's liability. And so we're going to fire him, but we'll give him a really nice going away party. <laughs> um, and the workers, the members were outraged. And so we got management to agree. We didn't think we could just get him to agree to just give him his job back because um, they were pretty stuck on firing him. But what we did get them finally to agree was to let uh, someone who worked for Vogue Rehab to come to the facility and review his area of vocational rehab rehabilitation. Um, and they were resistant, but finally they agreed, you know, and said, all right, we'll let this guy come. And the guy shows up and he's in a wheelchair. Hmm. And it's just great. And he's telling management, this is so easy, you need to purchase this, order that, he's <laughs> fine, he can do this job for as long as he's, you know, still alive and moving. So that was very gratifying to save that guy's job, um, because it was so important to him. Yeah. That's great. 
And then just a funny grievance win story that I always like to tell is that in one of the food co-ops in Vermont where we have a union, they have uh, this area in the store where food doesn't look that good. You know, they're not going to be able to sell it. The can's dented, the box is bent, whatever. And they put it in an area and they call it something which I can't remember right now. And workers are allowed to, you know, with permission, take food from that area home, right, for their own consumption. And I think right. they donate a bunch of it. So one day a guy at one of these co-ops took some meat that had, it wasn't red, it had started to turn gray home, and he didn't get permission. Mm -hmm. um, and he got violently ill managed to recover, management disciplined him for not obeying the rule to get permission. And I argued in the grievance meeting that his violent illness and stomach and bowels was punishment enough <laughs> and that they didn't need to into it and, and add to it. And the employer said, I think just cause has been served here. <laughs> So that one was fun one as well. See, I guess uh, it'd be just sort of interested. Do you have any any uh, stories about like the best or most interesting uh, contract language you've negotiated? Well, I can think of two if you have time, or just one if you don't. Yeah, yeah all the time good. in the world. Okay. <laughs> well, at one of those food co-ops, they had had actually it was from their employee handbook, and when we negotiate a first contract. We always look at the handbook to see if there's anything worth preserving. And right. at one of the co-ops, there was this section about how employees were guaranteed free speech. You know, I think a lot of people think that free speech is a constitutional right that we all have and don't realize that it ends as soon as you punch the clock or sign into work. Right. Uh, that the employer has broad discretion to curtail your speech. So management agreed to this policy. I understand they're now trying to get it out. Um, <laughs> but what it meant was, which is very unusual for retail workers, is that employees could wear, you know, political buttons, have free political speech, union buttons, et cetera. Um, so, and have open discussions, right, with customers, et cetera about what they needed to. I thought that was very good. The other language that I negotiated is for a shop that's no longer in the UE. It was an AIDS organization with mostly social workers who assisted uh, people who were living with HIV. And we were doing, you know, typical in a union contract is a wage section. And it's not unusual, especially in the service sector to have wage scales based on experience or degrees or certifications. The more you have, the higher you get. But we had this really interesting discussion in management, and it was interesting in that, you know, I was only the straight person in the room from both negotiating committees. Uh, uh -huh. But we started talking about life experience and if that should count. And so we had this whole discussion about, well, if you come out in New York City, that's not too hard. But if you're in, like, Billings, Wyoming, and you publicly count out, come out, right, that's right, hard. Right, right. So should you be compensated for making courageous decisions? <laughs> <laughs> right. 
or for suffering, right? Mm -hmm. For retribution and and all of that sort of thing. And they, they actually did, we did come up with wage scale that reflected some of that. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And then I do have one more. One more yes. is uh, when I we were organi- or we're, we, we were doing a contract. It was a first contract at a uh, nonprofit in Burlington. And the leadership of the local at that time wanted to get away from these wage scales that, you know, awarded people who had higher educations and certifications and et cetera into they wanted a flat wage scale for everyone. And this was a organization that called CBOEO. So they had like Head Start programs, but they also ran a food shelf uh, for low-income people to get food, as well as a lot of other services for low-income folks. And their argument was, and I agreed with them, um, I've never had another local have this opinion, but that the person who stocked the shelves at the food shelf was as important as the person who wrote the grants to receive additional funding, that each person contributed to the organization to make it a success, and each person should be paid the same amount of money for that contribution. Wow, that's uh, that's not common. <laughs> no, it's very uncommon in the service sector, especially. Right. And were you? And did the employees go for that? Did the members? Um, I mean, there were one or two people who didn't like it, but the majority were behind it. And we ended up with, I remember we collapsed the wage scale from like, I don't know, nine or 10 categories to four. Mm. And some people at the bottom got very large raises and people at the top got small raises, but it was much closer than it had been before the contract. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's been great talking to you. Thanks to everyone for listening. This has been the Smash Up Derby. If you have any thoughts or, or comments or questions for us, uh, hit our website, smashuppodcast.com. There's an ask or a comment button, uh, or hit us up on Twitter at Smash Up Podcast. 